Hello and welcome to another podcast from Sports Pro. This is Owen Connolly, but this is not the Sports Pro podcast. Instead, this week we're giving you a taster of Stream Time, a new series getting into all aspects of digital media, streaming, and OTT, hosted by Sports Pro Managing Director Nick Meacham. We've got some big guests and big discussions lined up already. If you needed proof of that, today we're going to be hearing from Phil Lynch, CEO of Media at Manchester United. Should be a fascinating listen. To say there is a lot to talk about there is an understatement, but I'll leave it to Nick to give you the details in just a moment. What I will tell you is that Stream Time is going to be coming out every Wednesday on its own feed, separate from this one. So make sure you seek it out on your preferred podcast platform and subscribe. You will not regret it. Another very quick note before I hand over to Nick, one that's especially pertinent if you are in the business of digital broadcasting or streaming. The Sports Pro OTT Summit will be back from the 15th to the 18th of November. We've got two days in person at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London and another two days of online sessions after that. You can find out everything you need to know about what should be an exceptional event via the website, which is sportspro-ott.com. And we've got an extra special offer running for our extra special podcast listeners as well. If you use the offer code POD30, then you'll get 30% off your pass. That's POD30, P-O-D, 3-0 for 30% off entry to the SportsPro OTT Summit. Take advantage of that at sportspro-ott.com. Just a little thank you for listening from us. Anyway, that's enough from me. It's stream time. Here's Nick Meacham. Hi everyone, Nick Meacham back with you for the second episode of the Stream Time podcast. Glad to get the first one under my belt, but have to say really enjoyed being able to speak with Rob Shaw from Facebook last time. For those that missed it, it's thoroughly worth a listen if you're interested in hearing what Facebook's plans are for sports. Rob was really candid about the fact that they've made some moves, like investing in live and exclusive MLB rights. And whilst they were able to deliver on audiences and create new revenue opportunities, for the MLB, what they could not do is drive monetization of those rights for themselves. Now, Rob was really candid about the fact that Facebook see themselves as a great platform for all sports properties, big and small. But I got a sense that they think they can drive so much value that they think sports should be really paying them. Rob didn't say that, but it's kind of how it came across. Anyways, Rob has a great story and really opened up about Facebook, and I think it's thoroughly worth a listen. Now, on to today's episode. Today, I'm really excited to talk with the CEO of media for Manchester United, Phil Lynch. Phil joined Man United nearly five years ago, moving from the sunny beaches of California to the cloudier skies of Manchester to take up a newly created role to lead the transformation of the club's media and digital businesses. His main focus is building their audience and fan base at scale and pushing them into their owned and operated platforms. It's not all about the money, as he puts it. He oversees their entire content operation and talks about the pressures going into creating content and audiences when you're under such a microscope like they are. He also digs into the way they work with the players and the quote-unquote Ronaldo effect of resigning with the club and what their priorities are around the OTT and digital space. Phil's another great storyteller, making some great things happen over there and generally really cool that we've been able to get such an insight into a club that is normally quite a closed book to the public. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Phil. But before we kick off, I do have to ask a favor. If you haven't already, please be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a rating on your platform of choice. As we're just getting started, every review really helps us to engage with more listeners. Now, it's over to Manchester United's Phil Lynch. Really looking forward to this one. Now, let's start with the easy bit and give a big welcome to the Streamtime podcast, Phil Lynch. Welcome. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here today. Now, um, straight away, I think most people would pick up that that isn't a uh, Mancunian audio, uh, accent there or a British one, obviously an American accent. So I think it's a really good place to kind of dig straight into and talk about uh, talk about you and your journey to there. But whereabouts are you from, Phil, exactly? 
Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Went to university uh, in New England at a place called Brown University, but started my professional career in Los Angeles and, and moved the family from uh, from Los Angeles to sunny Manchester about five years ago. Not many people call Manchester sunny, but I'll, <laughs> I'll let you I'll let you run with that one. Uh, look, that's just pretty well to talk about you first. Um, and you joined Man United, I think it's at the beginning of 2017. And what I believe was a newly created uh, role. Before we dig into the role and what you're doing now, talk us about that journey to to the club. Not sure where the best place to start there is, but perhaps from maybe when you joined Sony? Yeah, no, great. It's it, it's interesting. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the important things for me is always trying to look at that long-term ambition and that long-term narrative. And I think it's fair to say, I uh, lived in Los Angeles and, and obviously, um, you know, with the internet boom and, and kind of startups in that world, it was great. But, you know, my passion and my love has always been athletics and sport. And as I think back as a little kid, I always just wanted to have an executive role uh, at a sports club. So I spent about 10 years at Sony Pictures, had obviously some jobs before then as, as kind of my development, my professional development progressed, but really found my, my, my feet at uh, Sony Pictures working for a gentleman by the name of uh, Eric Berger, who's a mentor of mine. And uh, ultimately, after about eight or nine years there, realized it was probably time to make a change. And obviously, being in Los Angeles, you can either go one route where you stay in the studio route and you become that studio guy for 20 or 30 years, or you try to go, um, you know, try to do something new. And, and frankly, I had the opportunity uh, with Yahoo. Uh, at the time, we were working on a small uh, or, or, you know, a fairly decent size uh, online free streaming network called Crackle. And we were talking to some externals around investments and, and was introduced to, to Marissa and her team. I uh, was offered the job to come run content partnerships there. So a uh, massive job, about 3,500 partners, all verticals, beauty, fashion, lifestyle, sport, music, entertainment. But obviously, you know, one of my main ambitions and, and with Yahoo being part of the sale to Verizon, there was a really big focus on, on sports. So Spent about two years there and, and a core focus of, of my, my daily work was, was managing and, and doing live streaming deals with the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL. And I think over time, United was really trying to build out and kind of do this digital transformation as well. Uh, and I think at the time, obviously, I had very large social numbers, but I think we're trying to figure out kind of what the next path was. And I think they had obviously noticed uh, some of the work we did at Yahoo. So, you know, got the phone call from uh, Richard Arnold. Uh, very excited as a, as a child, uh, you know, grew up an Arsenal fan, but kind of, you know, mid nineties, like a lot of other people globally kind of became a Manchester United fan from a lot of the guys I went to university with. So, you know, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but when the, when, when the phone call came, it, it obviously made, made sense to, to jump and continue to invest in my sports career. And, and obviously, you know, it is a cliche, but it, but it was the dream job and the dream job opportunity. So, so here we are five years later. All right, so you've made your you've made you got the call from from Richard Arnold, um, and you've you've made the move over. Well, I guess what was what was the remit that you were you know sold by by Richard? Because again, CEO of media is can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a content led role, it can be a partnerships role, it can be media rights. What exactly sits within your remit there? Yeah, my my main remit, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, is is just overall to build reach and engagement and fan affiliation with our 1.1 billion fans and followers. And I think, to be fair, I think the club really obviously understood we have a massive follower base, uh, biggest in sport. And ultimately, you know, obviously with the mandate being grow, reach and engagement kind of versus monetization at the point, uh, that was kind of the mandate. Uh, for starters. But I think what's important for anybody that starts a new job, particularly when you're making a cultural shift like I was, um, you know, I didn't come in and just lay down a new strategy and start working. I kind of stayed behind the scenes for about six to nine months, kind of understood what was happening, what business we had in place, what was working, spent a lot of time with the financials and, and the data. And then probably around six or nine months, kind of put my my go forward strategy in place. And that's kind of where it started to happen. But I didn't kind of come in and just start smashing around and start doing exactly what I want. It was really important for me, particularly at a club uh, like Manchester United, to really understand how it functions, understand the history, understand uh, you know how the club does work and how that culture works and how I can fit into that. So uh, I, again, it took probably about six or nine months. And then you know from, from there, no rest for the weary. So you've taken those that time to, to get a sense of the club. And, and look, from where every time I've spoken to people that have made the shift 
from say the more more corporate world or more entertainment world shifting into sports can be a bit of a a learning curve because there's a lot of nuance into how not only how the clubs operate but also the fandom and all the the audiences they do have and, and what you do with that you spend that time uh, understanding learning i think which is which is great and actually quite unique to have that opportunity to really to to take time to di- um to digest what's going on and you said you had a, a strategy that you were able to develop. So, what was the strategy? Was it was it something new? Was it enhancing what you're already doing? Was there a was there a new silver bullet that you were going for? What was what was the plan? You know, I think at the time, uh, again, we're talking five years ago. I think a lot of things and where the business was 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 about social media. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I feel strongly there's a role in social media. I think uh, it's, it's an opportunity to use social for social. Let our fans interact. Let them engage with the club and let them engage with each other. However, I think the big shift in strategy from our side was to focus both on OTT and then more importantly, direct to consumer. So uh, again, I think we had a very large non-owned and operated platform, eyeballs, massive scale. Uh, but we started to do things like we built our the, the club's first mobile app, which um, is, is by far and away the most engaged mobile app in sports. Uh, we did small things, not small things, big things, but probably a little bit later than folks like launch on YouTube and TikTok and Yoku in China. We took MUTV over the top, uh, for a direct to consumer play. Traditionally it was, it was, it was distributed via linear television. So really it was all about just trying to create, um, kind of the direct relationship with fans. So, you know, I think, and I learned a lot about that with Sony, but I think ultimately, um, you know, you want to be able to to control your fans journey uh, and be that kind of personalized one-to-one relationship. And a lot of that's driven off of data and kind of that, that, that trust and that emotional connection uh, that you, that you build with these fans. And I think overall, not only about OTT and direct to consumer, but what I, what I really kind of took a step back and started to understand is I really wanted to prioritize true engagement. And again, uh, you know, an example of that is yes, we have, we have a massive following over 200 million people on social, but we all use social media and you're scrolling through a feed, right? And, and yes, you click on a heart or yes, you click on a thumbs up, but is that really engagement? And what I really wanted to, to prioritize and push what, what was kind of time spent, repeat visitors and, you know, people engaging with the content, not just scrolling through it, but stopping and finding it. So, you know, I think that was a big shift, but then I think, you know, the underlying kind of baseline on all of that is first party data, right? So I think we all know you get a lot of great data from social platforms, but but they keep a lot of data themselves. And, and, and the more you can get fans on your own and own platforms, the more you can mine that data, provide insights and give them the experiences that they want. So did you then have to go through quite a big digital transformation to build like the, the, the back end and the ecosystem that you needed to get that first party data, the data you wanted to, to judge success of the business and to be able to really understand the fans who were coming into your own, your own proprietary sort of platform? We did. I, and I think you hit upon it in your first question where, you know, I think for those first six to nine months, there was a lot of education and learning that I had to do about the club. Uh, but then I would also tell you kind of after that initial period, there was a lot of education that we needed to do on the other side, right? Explaining a big shift in the power of O&O and what we could do with the data. And I think some interesting examples are some of the businesses that I've that I've taken over since then. But obviously being a football club, uh, something like CRM was always managed as a ticket sale, right? But now as you start to get under the hood and understand the power of it, start to build that infrastructure, you start to educate everybody about it's not just about ticket sales it's about really managing all of your fans and all of your customers and whether that be ticketing or media or sponsorship so i think ultimately as you kind of you know you really have to kind of spread you know we're a football club we know what we do really well we win football matches we you know we um and that's the number one important thing but you know i think not only do we have to kind of shift our strategy but then obviously there's a big human resource piece of that as well i needed the right people in place to do the job uh, that, that we signed up to do. So where did you get, where are you now with the scale of operation you do have and, and what is in-house? And I, I'm guessing from what I've seen from where I sit in the industry, a lot of it is done house in-house, but what's also do you use third party for? Yeah. So it, it's a very interesting question. And I think, you know, for, at starters, if you think about the products, right, the products and market, I mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, our mobile app is obviously our number one priority. We're trying to get people in there. We're trying to create those daily habits, those expectations and provide value to these fans on a daily basis to just keep coming back and coming back. 
In addition to that, we have a 24-7 linear television network called MUTV, which is distributed globally. Uh, we obviously have the robust social media presence, over 200 million followers. We have a very long-standing print magazine and book business, right? Well, obviously, a club like Manchester United, we do, we do match day programs, monthly magazines, and, and usually a couple books uh, each year. We have club photography, obviously, which is kind of a, a, an underpinning of all of this, right? Particularly the social side. And then we talked about the CRM infrastructure, which includes e-commerce and ticketing as well. So, and I think you start, I, I, we're going to build the story as to, you know, I'm going to explain to you how many people we have doing it, but I think you need to understand how big and, uh, you know, that, that business is and those products are. And when you're talking about a 24 seven linear network, right? In, in, in over 180 territories, it's a, it's a fairly massive, um, operation. But in addition to this, and I don't think a lot of people always remember this, we do all of those products for four teams, right? We have the men's first team, the women's first team, an under 23s and an under 18s team as well. So a lot of live football happening across the board, a lot of sending people, you know, all over domestically to both home and away games. And I think ultimately, you know, we are over the last four or five years, we, we've made significant investments in this space and we brought on the, the, the industry leaders and experts, uh, particularly in kind of CRM marketing and data analytics. So we are continuing to build our team and, and you are right. We try to keep all of that in house, particularly obviously our data, which is, which is very, very important to us. That said, I think we also, uh, you know, given our business model, we do leverage best in class strategic partners, right? We have a very robust, probably best in market sponsorship business. And we're very strategic about those partners that we, we we select, right? So if you think about, you know, for for the app, for example, that's developed by a, a company called HCL based out of India, and they've been kind of our digital transformation partner for the past five years. So I think we do, uh, you know, we do all of our content production, we do all of our photography, we do all of our operations. But I think kind of on the development and the engineering side, we we certainly leverage a lot of our partners. Um, you know, I think. When you think about things like MUTV, you know, obviously we're using a lot of external partners around there for distribution. When you think about some of the sad things going on in the world now, right now, in terms of social media, right, we do a lot of time of managing those third party platforms, identifying risks, identifying racist issues, trying to pull things down. So it is a fine balance, but I think ultimately, you know, the, the key things to remember is we definitely want to prioritize our O&O. And I think it is kind of a, a fine balance between managing third party and O&O. But in the end, we just want our, con our, our content out there. And we want our fans to be able to engage, engage on our content on whatever platforms they prefer. Um, so I think that's fair to say on the distribution side. But I, I, I do think it's, you know, one of the analogies I always try to do going back to the education piece, you know, if it was Nick and Phil's coffee, we would probably buy our coffee from Sainsbury and resell it. Right. But when you're Starbucks, you want to you, you want to you want to grow your own coffee, and, and and if it's something that's kind of mission critical to your business, I think you want to keep it as close to your chest as you can. You want to build it, you want to own it, and then obviously we leverage best in class partners to kind of help us with, with, with the things that we're not experts at. I think we do a lot of things well, but I think we also we're aware of when you know we, we can leverage partners to help us, and we have a great portfolio of partners. So you've obviously gone through this digital transformation, created new apps and, and you have Manu TV and you have all these other platforms. One of the biggest challenges when creating a platform is how far ahead you can uh, look to make sure you have a platform that is fit for purpose as we have this huge digital transformation going across our entire industry and, and society. How, how did you, what were some of the challenges there when you're looking at what you're trying to build from, a, from a, you know, the, the ecosystem you've talked about? And what sort of, I guess, maybe moves did you make to try and make sure you had something that was really first in class and would give you a runway to to build and, and nurture and create a quality product that has a really strong lifespan and isn't something you have to completely overhaul in 12 months time? Great question. I mean, we definitely, um, we look at all of our distribution and all of our partners and, and even all of our own and other products and we develop natively for each one of them. So uh, there was a great quote when we launched on YouTube because, you know, it's evidenced by, you know, on YouTube, we've been the fastest growing football channel ever. Same thing on TikTok, uh, same thing on Yoku in China. And I think it goes kind of a little bit to lessons learned. And I'm sure people that are listening to this feel that pain as well. In the digital world, there's always a million things to do. And you can just constantly get in this world of just 
you know, is it audio? Is it NFTs? Is it crypto? Is it streaming media? Should we do a subscription product? You know, like, and it, it just never ends. And I think it's, it's always a very fine balance of trying to manage your resources versus the opportunity. And it's very easy to approach a lot of these things with eyes wide open, you know, and, and maybe your, your eyes bigger than your stomach. But you'll see there was a great quote when we launched on YouTube uh, and, and the records we achieved within those first kind of several months. But there was, there was a quote and I forget who said it. And I apologize to the journalist that did say it because I can't I don't know the name, but it said Manchester United isn't always the first to the party. But when they show up, they're the best dressed. So what we'll do, and I think you'll see probably a lot, you know, and I'm not knocking it, but I think a lot of football clubs and a lot of businesses in general do research, find out about these new platforms, and they just think you got to be there. You just got to be there. Um, and that's not what we do. We try to look at a, um, kind of a unique content proposition for each platform. TikTok's very different than Twitter. Twitter's very different than Instagram. And we spend a lot of time doing an analysis and trying to understand what kind of content will work on that particular platform. And in a lot of cases, like a TikTok, for example, we didn't really have a producer on board to produce content for TikTok. So yes, we could have launched on that channel long before, but it would have probably been more of the same. And we really wanted to kind of focus in and have a unique native experience on our content for TikTok. So, you know, we do spend a lot of time thinking natively about each platform and, and the differences of each. Uh, and you'll see us, you know, we, we do take a lot of advantage of windowing. So we might do, you know, like, you know, a, two or three minute of a podcast piece on social, but then the full hour and a half podcast with Sir Alex Ferguson might be on the website or the app. We spend a lot of time analyzing and being very strategic about the partners we want to get onto because, you know, and again, and I'm not trying to flip it a little bit, but we know what we bring to the party, right? So uh, when we bring something to the party, yes, we have 1.1 billion fans and followers, but we also have a lot of people that, 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 that want to see us fail, right? So when we when we launch on a new platform, we want to make sure that we have the right resources and the right strategies in place. And I think, uh, you know, our numbers and our launches, uh, you know, speak to that very easily. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, um, on social anyway, you're one of the last clubs to come onto Twitter, if I remember correctly. But within like minutes, there was millions, basically people were signing up uh, in, in seconds and the account was basically one of the leading uh, accounts in, in in a matter of days, if, if if not a little bit longer. So And that happened in YouTube. And it's, it's funny because I just looked at a report this morning, a social media report for September. We had over, over 550 million engagements in the month alone, which is a record for any sports club globally, right? Just in, in history. And, um, and then if you add up, the other 19, in terms of the engagements they had on social, they still didn't exceed us as number one. So, uh, you know, again, this is, uh, I'm very fortunate. We spent a lot of time building out the team, hiring the team, hiring these experts. And, and uh, you know, I think their work speaks for themselves. So when you came in, you talked about that you, one of your main focuses was audience engagement, build audiences, build value for the audience because obviously you guys have an incredible fan base, uh, global fan base, which gets a lot of coverage. Um, now you've been doing that for a number of years and continue to find your opportunities, TikTok, you've got your own platforms in place. How much of that time now, uh, I guess, or how much of your attention is shifting to the monetization piece, uh, whether that is through the, the you know subscription, advertising, um, partnerships and sponsorship. Obviously you guys have um, deliverables you need to deliver for certain partners. What does that look like now? How much of your time is now sh balancing between that monetization and the audience uh, development? It's, it's a great question. It's, it's, you know, the, the remit still is grow, reach and engagement when you speak from a media direct to consumer world, right? Which, which, which is my core responsibility. That said, Nick, you, you nailed it. Obviously we spend a lot of time with our, with our commercial partners, our sponsor partners, branded content, I think historically we have some traditional revenue businesses, right? We have uh, MUTV, which is which is a subscription television uh, network. We also obviously have e-commerce and then you know digital ticketing, and I think they're 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 fairly straightforward and obviously a, a large focus on, on on those. I think on the e-commerce side, with what we've built, we've talked about the CRM infrastructure and kind of that first party data. Uh, you know, we we've grown that business over a hundred percent back-to-back years, right? Just, just kind of on building kind of what we are, what we've, what we've developed over time as it pertains to just digital media and media in, in general, uh, we still are about reach and engagement. And, you know, I think I find it 
somewhat ironic because you'll see a lot in the press about, you know, our commercial prowess and how we want to monetize everything. But I think it's probably fair to say we're probably the only football club in the world these days that does not monetize social media. And again, it's about we want to put the fan first. We want to understand what they're doing and we want to allow the fans to come in and engage with the club and engage with the content with the kind of understanding that if we build those relationships over time, we have a lot of really smart people at the club. We'll figure out how to monetize them over time. But there's, you know, I feel somewhat fortunate that I, that I don't have a lot of pressure about that. It's just about growing the overall reach and getting people to come back more often. Do you feel some of that though is linked with also, um, we see it right across the entire sports industry that the monetization of digital audiences uh, and digital assets is still a bit of a challenge. Like we're not, when no organization I'm aware of is say like maxed out in terms of how they monetize their, their digital communities and audiences that they have currently, there's still a bit of a gap there, whether it be um, brand partners understanding the value of those digital assets through to um, the uptake and appreciation of subscription-based propositions for, for fans who generally, typically we see across the industry, they just kind of want everything for free and uh, are happy to consume it through um, social and, and that you've got to, you've got what you're doing to get them across to, to your own platforms. Do, do you think there's a bit of that, when, whether it's man, you or more generally across the industry that um, there's still a sort of an adoption piece for, for the commercialization, particularly for advertisers and partners to go, yes, we see, we understand what that ROI is that we can generate from, from looking at you guys and more of a, so more of a digital sense than those traditional global or regional sponsorship deals, which I think, you know, as you said, Man United's very well known for. It's like the framework, commercial framework that it does operate in that regard. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's tricky. And I think, I think that differs per situation or per company that you work at, right? And, and one of the things that I think is very interesting about our side, and I should have probably talked about it when you were talking about coming on board, I would find it very difficult to find another company that, that is as international as Manchester United. So, right, I came from Yahoo and Sony Pictures, really thought they were international uh, entities. But when I came to Manchester United, I really understood it. So I think the reason that's relevant to the question is I think it's relevant to geographic regions. I think certain markets have very healthy ad markets. I think obviously with programmatic and some of these, sometimes it's a race to the bottom. And we, you know, pretend or not, we prefer to keep, you know, our brand at kind of a premium level. I think then you have other, you know, geographic areas, whether it be Thailand or, you know, India or Indonesia, uh, where perhaps maybe the ad markets might not be as strong or maybe the the IT infrastructure isn't, right? I mean, Wi-Fi is still not fully, just, you know, 5G in, in several territories. So I think, and then on the flip side of that, you know, we talked about more of our traditional lines of businesses, ticketing, e-commerce and MUTV. We do a lot of uh, thinking around GDP in certain areas, right? So there's a we have massive fan bases in certain territories where just let's be honest, they're probably not going to spend 80 quid to buy a new kit, right? Just because of, of GDP or, or local pressures. So it's really about trying to understand those differences and trying to understand what's the right product for the right fan at the right time. But I do think, you know, I think the future could be uh, there's there's ways to begin to start monetizing digital, but I think where where our focus is is more supporting you know kind of our sponsorship partners and doing branded entertainment. I think we've made a lot of you know we have the luxury of having you know 25 world class superstars right as influencers, and I think you know one of the big shifts you've seen in the market is you know it used to just be stamping logos. And that's not what we do anymore. We, we, we do authentic storytelling, uh, you know, build that emotional connection between our players and our fans. And to us, that's a focus. So there is monetization behind that by working with partners on branded content. But in terms of what the market refers to as kind of the spots and dots of just filling, you know, pre-rolls, mid-rolls, um, you know, personally, I, I question the customer experience or the fan experience, right? We want people engaging with our fans and then, um, you know, given the scale of us, you know, there's a little bit of scarcity. The more scarce scarcity you have, the more you can charge to access that audience. And in the digital world of social media, that's why it's a race to the bottom. There's just like unlimited inventory, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you talked a little bit about the players there. I think that's probably a good segue to talk about because uh, fundamentally, again, in the industry, um, we've seen this huge shift, I suppose, a shift um, 
to the followers of people being the pri- like the followers of athletes being a, the primary channel for many into how they consume sports. They they follow the player from club to club. For example, we've seen uh, and we could obviously talk about Ronaldo rejoining the club, but the Ronaldo the Ronaldo effect, if you want to call it that, which a few people have, it, it, it was quite it got a lot of coverage when he moved from Real Madrid to Juventus, and we they saw this this huge uh, shift of followers literally unfollow Real Madrid and jump over to to Juventus at the time. And more recently with him jumping over to you guys, obviously you'll see that bump and, and reconnection with followers that maybe you followed you guys previously. But also there is, uh, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, you guys work with Fanatics on the, the e-commerce side uh, and they showed, shared some numbers and, and it was more publicly promoted that there was the fastest selling, I think, shirt on record that they've had uh, from an individual play with Ronaldo, Ronaldo joining uh, the team again, and, and so forth. So, where I guess where I'm trying to get is, how, what role is the athlete playing then in in your strategy? I'm guessing now it's never been more important than it is today. Uh, and what what are you doing with them versus what they're doing themselves? Because obviously they have their own channels. And so, what does that relationship look like? If that makes sense? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think to the first point. Again, going back back to the 1.1 billion fans and followers and global audience, 100% correct in terms of there are certain audiences out there that have affiliation with clubs, right? So for starters, what we do is we have about seven main cohorts. Uh, and, you know, they go from all the way of, you know, our, our, our best diehard fans in the Stratford end to kind of, you know, maybe the the casual neutral fan that might support three or four other clubs, right? And I think in this case, we're speaking about kind of that right-hand side, right? You know, we, we, have, we have a lot of fantastic fans that are just, you know, because of their, their fathers, their uncles, their grandfathers, you know, and the history of the club are going to be our fans regardless of the player. But you are starting to see a lot of these younger kids, you know, again, mostly through social media, uh, really have an affiliation with players. And, and you are correct. I think Ronaldo is a great example. I think... What's very interesting for us is obviously Ronaldo is, you know, let's just be honest, he's in a world of his own in terms of the social media and the following. But I think what's really interesting for us is it's the reverse. When we sign a new player, even when they come from a Real Madrid, like a Rafael Varane or, you know, a Dortmund like like Sancho, their social profiles grow exorbitantly as soon as we launch their channels, right? So if you look at somebody like Bruno Fernandez, you know, big following joins the club through the roof, right? And I think... You know, I think the answer to that question holistically is there's no real set game plan. I think every player is very different, right? And again, going back to the four teams, we have a women's team, we have an academy team. We signed some very well-known young academy players, but there's certain, you know, our job there is to protect them. So what we typically do now with every new signing is uh, obviously you're right. They have a lot of teams that support them on their social media, but within joining the club, uh, a few of us go and we meet with both the player and their team. Uh, first week of joining, we obviously give them, you know, an overview on our culture, the history to ensure that, that that they're up to speed on kind of, you know, things like the Munich disaster, so on and so forth. But really the, the, the premise of that meeting is for us to listen to them, right? So each one of these players are individuals. Some want charity focus, some want family focus, some want just football focus. And I think it's really trying to understand what narrative they want to tell and then we're here to help support that narrative. I think, you know, it does get a little tricky sometimes because I think there's there's a lot of the the mass media out there trying to build that story, trying to find that tabloid piece of content. That's not what we do at all. We're we're trying to work with them and understand the narrative and the story they want to get out, and then we support that. And we join forces on it. I think to your question about you know how do we work with them. We pull twice a day um, social media fan sentiment graphs for every single one of our players. Uh, and we have certain thresholds um, that, that alert us when we see fan sentiment going one way, whether that be a personal issue, whether that be an on-pitch performance issue. And when that happens, we then start to work with the player and his team individually to kind of try to start to counter that narrative a little bit. Because in a lot of cases, you know how it is, it's just emotion. And it comes up and it comes down anyway. But we do spend a lot of time on what we call social media monitoring and tracking and then working specifically with each individual players. But again, it's 25 bespoke processes. It's not, hey, here's here's the game plan and it's going to work for all of you. Yeah. And so and that makes absolute sense. Um, then you so you have this team of players and obviously with this 
you have new connections to a whole host of different markets, depending on where those athletes are, are from, obviously. What are you doing around that? Again, is it, do you have a dedicated, do you look at each player on its merits and go, okay, well, that player is actually based in Australia. So, or from, from Australia originally, we're going to um, develop a tailored strategy now from a, from particularly through social and so forth to target the Australian marketplace more as a result of bringing that player in. Like it's, it's obviously not a decision that the club makes to why they come, but like, as in the opportunity for you as in the media team to go, okay, what can we do with this opportunity that this, this, this player's joined? We do. And outside of, you know, obviously when Ronaldo joined, right. I think a lot of our channels were very heavy Ronaldo, just giving the excitement of him coming back, right. Like what, what an opportunity and what a legend, but I think ultimately we never want what, you know, no, no player's ever bigger than the team, right? We, we always want to try to build the profiles and the narrative for each of them. I think you are a hundred percent correct. Um, in terms of obviously nationalities. So obviously we, we, we do translate our content, um, a lot of our editorial content in, in seven to eight languages and then social media almost up to 20. So we work a lot going back to your question about who do we use externally. We do use a lot of external translation services to, to make our content available. And then I, you know, obviously I think you are right. Obviously in, in a place like France, you know, we have Paul Pogba, we have Rafael Varane, we have Anthony Marshall. Um, and those are players that resonate in that audience as well. But again, it's, it, it's, it's, it's less about the player on that side. For us, what we're trying to do is, is we get data from our fans and I, and we know. So for example, when you onboard on our app, uh, you pick a favorite player. So yes, you might be based in France, but you might be Bruno Fernandez might be your favorite player. Right. And if we're going to engage that individual for, you know, competing against Netflix and Amazon, it's, you know, we're all competing for the same amount of time, right? You need to make sure that you put the right offer in front of the right user at the right time. So in that example, if this person's in France, but really likes Bruno Fernandez, it's kind of a wasted impression to sell him a jersey of another player or to promote highlights of another player. You know, we want to give them what what they do. So we do, uh, we look at a lot of data, but I think it's more fans to players per se, rather than obviously, of course, you know, like in England, we have a lot of England fans and, our, you know, they obviously support our players as well, but it, it does get a little bit of a, of a level deeper. I'm sure that was an interesting journey with the social media sentiment and uh, we don't have to dig into it too much now, but the, the situation with Marcus Rashford and getting involved in the political side, that would have been a, that would have probably blown off the uh, the reports into it in taking them into a new stratosphere, I, I'm sure. But um Looking at, again, one of the things you often see in, in the consumer media coverage when a, any major player joins a, a club is the whole, well, that club's going to make up that deal in jersey sales or shirt sales. Now, in the, in the, the industry, in the sports biz space, most people by now know that that's not how it works. Again, with, with what details you're able to share, but just talk about the framework of what actually happens with a shirt sale or, or how that is, is or isn't the case, you know, when, when the new club player comes to the club, what, what really happens there? And is that just a complete taboo that or a complete uh, fable that, that the shirt sales don't really make a difference financially in the grand scheme of things as part of that, that player coming to a new club? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a tricky one. I think... When, when you're talking about the scale of like Cristiano Ronaldo, right? I mean, we sold 5X the kits of what PSG did for Messi in those first weeks or two. So, you know, I think, you know, that is interesting. What I would tell you is all of the articles you see, um, it's just, for lack of a better word, it's lazy journalism. They don't understand the economics of the business. Uh, we have a lot of partners, right? We, we have Fanatics that provide the United Direct platform for us. We have a, a fabulous relationship with Adidas. And there are different structures. And again, I would, you know, those structures different per by club, right? You know, so, so club A might get X percent of each, each Jersey sold club C might get Y. Um, and, and some of those are in the press, but I think to, um, to look at it that myopically is, is probably not the right situation. And I, and I would be surprised if, if any executive in football buys a player, under the premise of we're going to sell enough kits in the next three weeks to pay for the whole thing. I just, I, I, I it, it, to me, it just feels kind of more clickbaity and trying to take advantage of, of one big football club brands, but two, 
you know, clickbait around these players, right? You don't see it around the normal signing. You see it around Messi. You see it around Ronaldo. You see, you see it around those types of guys. So, um, yeah, to me, I, I don't think much of it. And the, and the ones I have read are certainly not accurate. Yeah, no, I, I think anyone who works in this in the industry uh, knows that uh, they get, those stories get quite frustrating, but they clearly do a lot for the mainstream media. Uh, let's uh, shift things back into your own platforms a little bit. You talked about Man U TV a little bit. You talked about the scale very briefly in terms of, I think it was 180 markets, if I remember correctly. Again, talk us a bit about what that is and, again, the the model of, of Man U TV, what, what is in it and what's not, uh, and that's a good probably framework to start with yeah it, it's um as far as i know i believe it's the the first sports club 24 7 linear network so i think it's we're, we're, we just passed i believe 22 years of existence um and it is it's a great product it, it, it's it's definitely catered towards our you know our, our we were talking about the different cohorts this is definitely kind of more towards our hardcore fans and, and ultimately it has all of our live matches for all four teams. Uh, well, sorry, it has live matches for three of the four teams in most cases. And then for the men's team, obviously we have holdbacks, but we, we launch them you know, as soon as we, we, we can. And I think depending on the region, if you think about maybe a place like China or Indonesia, um, a lot of times those holdbacks are very friendly because the kickoff times are very bad, right? So, you know, the game might be at 8 p.m. UK time, which might be 4 a.m. in a certain region. Obviously, some people stay up, but most are sleeping. And then we're able to allow them that fan to watch that game for the first time, let's just say at 10 o'clock in the morning when they wake up. So it's definitely it's a subscription product. Um, you know, it's definitely a heavy focus on a yearly subscription. We offer monthly subscriptions, but a, a significant discount for yearly subscriptions. I think the channel in and of itself has evolved significantly over the last several years. I think, again, this is leading into this business you have now versus the business that you're building for the future. Uh, I mentioned we, we had very big linear distribution, took it direct to consumer. I think very interesting to note the average age of our fan base linearly for MUTV is 52. The average age for our direct to consumer MUTV is 29, right? Same network, same exact network, same content, but obviously two very big different audiences. So we're now making a lot, you know, whether that be pundits or, or show formats, but again, using the data to tell us all of those things. And again, the, the idea for us is we really want to create those daily habits and, and provide value and be part of these people's lives. So they want to come back every day and engage with us. So it is a heavy focus. I think ultimately, you know, again, we are talking about to the earlier point about certain countries, right? A subscription product probably isn't the most compelling product in certain regions with very low GDP, but we do see a lot of obviously success in, in, in places like the UK, America, Norway, Ireland. Um, so I think ultimately over time, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, is it free trials? Do you add on access to MUTV for season ticket holders, which we've done. We've done a lot of free access to MUTV for e-commerce providers as well. So. It's definitely a core asset for, for, for a lot of our really hardcore fans and, and really that match day experience. Uh, but at the same time, also just trying to use it to just allow people to engage with the club. So we, so we do provide it almost on you know, free three or six months, uh, depending on how you engage with the club elsewhere. So you've had incredible growth across Manu TV and, and all your digital assets by the sounds of it through social audiences as well. What have been some of the challenges in that growth? I, I know a lot of people would be, uh, you know, very uh, jealous of someone like yourself to be able to to run and uh, be part of the Man United monster of of an organization and fan base. But I can imagine you kind of alluded to it, perhaps, but some challenges with fans and 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 so forth. Maybe that might be a thing. I don't know. What have been some of the challenges in rolling out a, a more scaled digital and media operation? Uh, I I think it goes back to kind of a little bit of that earlier discussion. There's always so much to do, right? And and we can all start our days with with, with a hundred things on our to do list, uh, and we all do sadly, um, and and that's just everybody in the world, really. And I think it's about again trying to just really narrow into those two or three things. What's going to make the biggest impact? Do we have the right resources? Do we have the right people doing these things? I think you'll see a lot of folks like to just throw things against the wall. And then they'll see that something sticks and then they'll invest in that. And, and, and that's not our process. We're very thoughtful. We're very analytical. We want to make sure when we do something, we're going to be the best at it. 
Um, and then again, I think, you know, uh, I view challenges kind of as opportunities, right? And, and that's kind of, it's always tricky how that kind of is. But I think the basic things when you think about the global business, the translations, things like racism, uh, you know, we run into these challenges every single day on some of these platforms and how do we kind of manage, you know, because a lot of times it's not even our fans, right? It's, it's, it's other fans that actually follow us. If you look at an overlap of, uh, of other clubs, you know, some of these big clubs, 50, 60% of their, their fans sometimes also follow us in certain instances, right? Because they just want to see what's happening. So it's about trying to keep that kind of clean dialogue. I think, you know, again, overall, I think it's very important to understand that you want to hit singles, right? We all have big eyes. We all have big ambitions. But if, if, if to use an American analogy, get to first base, you get to first base, you get to second base, you get to second base, you go to third base, you're going to score a run. Uh, and I think ultimately people try to really approach things. I think, again, just kind of parlaying on that question, I think all of us have been challenged during this COVID period, right? How do you provide access to players? How do you shoot content? You know, players were at home, employees were at home. And I think, you know, a lot of businesses, and I, and I honestly can say this, we are coming out of the COVID, well, I know we're still in the COVID period, but when we finally get out of it, we're going to be stronger than we were before going into it. And that's because we, we just used the opportunity to reassess and how do we work on things and how can we be more efficient and how can we be smarter and more clever? So I think that's kind of, you know, obviously that's been a challenge for everybody. Uh, but I think that the number one challenge for, for, for everybody in a role like mine is there's just so much to do and where do you want to place your bets? And then ultimately, you know, we talked about challenges and opportunities and this is a personal feeling of mine. Um, I'm not saying it's, 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 it's a wide one, but to me, it, it, it's not failing, right? If you make a mistake, it's learning, right? So we do try to, you know, I told you we really want to be buttoned up, but obviously we are human and we do make mistakes. And I think what happens from there is just use it as a learning experience. And, and like anything in your personal life, just fix it fast, <laughs> you know, just fix it fast. Sadly, we are under a microscope by, uh, the world's media, right? So when we do make a mistake, it's, it, it's very well known very quickly. Um, but you just try to really kind of be across it, stay organized. So you try to minimize those opportunities. We know that people are, are really looking forward to us to make a mistake. So we try not to make any, but when we do, we learn from them. Yeah. Uh, probably un under one of the world's biggest, uh, microscopes, I would, I would say. Uh, so look, looking ahead now, you've the last four, five years that you've been with the club, you've got on undergone, a big digital transformation. We all know the digital transformation doesn't stop. Like it's sort of an ongoing thing, particularly in this world. So what, what are the next, is there the next big thing or the next key areas you're focused on? What should we expect that's the next big project, product platform, perhaps that you guys might be rolling out soon or, or in the not too distant future, that's going to perhaps wow the fans and wow the industry? I don't want to announce anything here. No one. Uh, but we are doing a lot of uh, thinking around uh, potentially simplifying some of our products, maybe consolidating some of our products. We are thinking through, and again, it's just we're, we're constantly analyzing things. Uh, do we change business models around certain products in certain territories? Um, you know, I think ultimately when to, to that question, you know, obviously we just signed a new uh, shirt partner, Team Viewer. So anytime a partner like that comes on board, you know, obviously we're going to start leveraging them for their tools and, and for their softwares right around AR, VR and, and kind of build from that system. So I think ultimately a lot of that is driven by our, our, our new partners. But I think, you know, again, the, the, the remit right now is we just want to get our mobile app in as many people's hands as possible. And then I personally am spending a lot of time on the e-commerce business as well right now. Uh, just because I think, you know, we're not alone on that side either, right? It, another COVID situation where people couldn't go to stores. So we see that as a really big opportunity. If you look at Manchester United, um, right, we, we, we had, and it goes back to your monetization question, which we're not doing, but, you know, we have the best commercial team in the world. We have the, the, the biggest club football stadium in the country that probably isn't going to get any bigger. And we have more people on the waiting list than we could fit into the stadium, um, we have had growth in e-commerce, but you start to kind of figure out where are those next opportunities, right? And where is it? I think e-commerce is an interesting piece of it, but I think, you know, what I'm really trying to do and where I really want to focus is it's something that I'm referring to as the middle. And what you have to understand is about 99% of our fans and followers will probably never be at Old Trafford. So how do we 
take that Old Trafford experience, supplement it, and offer it digitally to those fans that are never going to be able to make it. But then also, you know, extremely important, obviously very important, are our match day going fans. How do we use digital products to make their experience more compelling, right? Because they're in it at the stadium. How, how can the app be a second screen? How can we provide data on an injury on the, on, the, on the pitch? Because you can see it in your living room, but sometimes when you're in stadium bowl, you don't know what's going on. So I'm really focusing on what I refer to as the middle and trying to make the digital experience both supplement the folks that are never going to come to Old Trafford, but then also different products that, to, to make that match day experience in Manchester even better. Makes makes a load of sense. I mean, we hit we, from all the conversations I've been having with with rights holders and who are going direct to consumer. Improving uh, share of wallet and e-commerce opportunities is a priority, and, and centralizing audiences if they do have uh, like an OTT offering and then have uh, app or other all these different channels. Is how do you bring those those together so you're not having to work extra hard to get, talk to the same person all the time, which, which makes, you know, make, makes obviously loads and loads of sense. And, and uh, additionally, your, your point about um, what you do with the middle, which I think is a great way to, to talk about it, is uh, I actually heard Peter Moore, who's the ex-chief uh, executive of Liverpool, he actually talked on our podcast uh, yesterday or the day before, talking about metaverse and talking about what they're trying to do to do that very thing. And there's all these fans that they can't reach or any sports club league can't reach or can't get into the the stadium or in, in venue experience how do you bring that to them uh and this then he I've, it's worth if you haven't looked at it already go check out peter moore's unity business and what they're doing because that that's the sort of thing i think is inevitably where that opportunity to serve the middle is is going to be delivered agree yeah i will check that you know peter always has very interesting things to say so so that that'll be great and i think you know, it is interesting and, and you're right. I think we're all faced with the same challenges, but I think, and this is where people like, like myself who, who, who want to put the fan first and let the fan dictate, you know, what's happening. You know, it's, if you just started every meeting when you're talking about product development or content development, and if you just started every meeting and just said, okay, what does the fan want? All of our meetings would be a lot shorter and a lot more efficient, right? Because we all try to put in our focus group of two, or this is what my kid does, or my niece does that. But just start with the fans. And I think, I, I, I honestly am very proud of the work we do here. And it's, it's I think what people miss, and I, and I think we have the right structure in place and the right mentality, but it's not just about selling, 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 selling. It's you, you got to warm the audience up. You got to build the emotional connection with them. They got to understand the history. And then over time, when you build a relationship with somebody, there will be opportunities to sell, but it's not about that. And that's again, going back to that social media ad side. Like, like I just want you to engage with the content. I want to build a relationship with you. I don't want to start splashing you with ads to buy deodorant or body spray or, you know, whatever it might be. So again, it's just that kind of organic, natural evolution of a relationship. And then, you know, as we start to have that relationship, we get more and more data from it. And then I gave you the example about Bruno and Kiss, but then we can start serving you specific content that you like, right? Which then it just kind of becomes that self-fulfilling loop. Well, I think on that note, I think, look, Phil, I think what you guys have been able to do over the last four or five years has been pretty pretty incredible to watch from afar. And I'm really excited to see what is next uh, in Man United's uh, media and digital journey. Um, but big thank you to joining us on, on the podcast and, and thanks for finding some time for us. No, really appreciate the time, Nick. And, uh, you know, obviously if you're ever up in Manchester, come on up. We'd love to host you for a match. So uh, invites out there. Won't miss it. Cheers, Phil. Cheers. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick.